0: From hook and bullet to policy and science, we're here to discuss and dissect all matters of importance to Montana's rugged landscape and the people and wildlife that call it home. This is Montana Untamed. The Endangered Species Act turns 50 years old this December, often called the Pitbull of Environmental Statutes The ESA has given federal protection to more than 2,000 animals and plants. It has also drawn critics who claim it takes away property rights and hurts economic development. After half a century of recovery efforts, only a few hundred species have got delisted. On the other hand, the whole world faces a biodiversity crisis with more than 44,000 species threatened with extinction and the ESA has been the international model law for how to save what the world has left. Some of the ESA's biggest struggles have happened in Montana, including fights over gray wolves, grizzly bears, bull trout, and sage grouse. As the law reaches its 50-year anniversary, a group of reporters scanned the state to see how it's working and what its future holds. With me today is Rob Cheney, the leader of that project, uh, to give us a primer on 50 years of the law and what readers can expect from the reporting. Rob, uh, to start, um, let's talk about how the ESA got started 50 years ago this month.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, that was a uh, one of just a tidal wave of environmental legislation that went through the uh, U.S., population back in the nineteen uh, late 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s, um, when just a, a cascade of environmental problems were becoming so obvious that it was a, a huge political thrust. You know, um, the Cuyahoga River was catching fire multiple times. Um, strip mining had become a thing and mountaintop removal mining had become a thing for coal and the burning of the coal especially on the um, eastern part of the US was stripping trees and killing fish from the acid rain that it was producing and things like Love Canal where industrial uh, pollutants were getting into public water systems and causing giant cancer cells going into neighborhoods and folks were just saying, enough of this. We need to rein in uh, the damage that we're causing. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring pointed out to everybody in a very readable way that you know we were just losing critters and biodiversity and the landscapes that we loved at an incredibly rapid pace. And so a long list of federal legislation started marching through Congress. We got the Wilderness Act of 1964, and then we got the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And in 1966, we passed the Endangered Species Preservation Act, which sort of created the original endangered species list, but it didn't really have a lot of muscle attached to it. And that uh, went through a few... uh, revolutions and then by 1973 we got what we now know as the Endangered Species Act and that passed both houses of Congress I believe it was unanimous in the Senate and it was everybody to 12 in the House Um, and then Richard Nixon signed it as a uh, uh, Christmas um, ceremony in the White House and it's an incredibly powerful law they they talk about the wilderness act of 1964 as being the most poetic piece of legislation about you know how the the um, landscapes must be untrammeled and and man is a visitor who does not remain the endangered species act was these Creatures are being hurt by economic development, and we give them the right to survive regardless of uh, other intentions for either their habitat or their existence. It's a, as they say, a pit bull of a law, and it's very clear in its construction that the found the writers, the drafters we're really nervous about people trying to weasel out from its requirements. So, for example, um, there, was, there is, still is a big movement of who is in charge of wildlife. Is it a state issue or is it a federal issue? And for the most part, states say it's, it's a state thing. Our fish and game folks are the closest to the habitat, closest to the ground, closest to the people who depend on it. We know what's going on. But a very unique characteristic of American law and American society is that we consider wildlife a public trust. Mm -hmm. It belongs to all of us. Mm -hmm. And that goes way back to the American Revolution and our uh, old British English heritage, where in Great Britain, the wildlife was the king's deer. It was uh, only the king, you know. That's why Robin Hood had to go hide out in Sherwood Forest because he was trying to uh, feed his family, and he kept shooting the king's deer, and mm-hmm. they uh, chased him off his land. Um, very early on in American law, uh, we said no. The the deer and the, the huckleberries and all the rest of that are belong to all Americans. They are not the uh, the purview of the property owner who happens to have them on their land, or the uh, you know some other commercial um, vector, they're everybody's. And as the evidence came up that we were losing them at a disturbingly fast rate, um, they built a law that said the federal government is in charge of these federal public trust assets, these wildlife and these wild plants. And the states may uh, consult on how to manage them and recover them, but they don't have veto power. They don't get to concur. And I talked to some of the folks who um, chronicled the creation of this law, and I was asking you, know, how, how did we wind up with such a, a very explicit, this is the right thing and that's the wrong thing law? And they said, because everybody who was involved in writing this In Congress, in the White House, in the federal agencies, uh, and even in the judiciary, was pretty much a war veteran. Hmm. They were either in World War II or the Korean War uh, when they were drafting all this, and a few of them, we were carrying that uh, into the Vietnam era, but they were all about command and control. That if you got a tool... It's supposed to do a thing, and you're not supposed to run it through a committee and dilly-dally about it um, if you really want to get it done. Right. And so the ESA was built to get it done.
0: Right. Can we uh, – before we move on, I was maybe we could rewind a little bit to, I guess, the, the legislating of this sort of law that is has just, like, such far-ranging effect on the country – in um, the natural resources, was there, you know, as this was going through Congress and they were they were kind of building these protections, was there a lot of defiance from special interests? I mean, I think you mentioned in the Senate it was a unanimous decision, and there was only a few votes off in the House. You know, we think about Congress today and and the idea of something being passed so resoundingly just doesn't seem to fit the way we think of congress now can you maybe bring us back to how that process worked and uh, i mean is it just can do we deduce that it was truly that much on everybody's minds the degradation in the environment that it was just a no-brainer or help me i guess help us understand how that legislative process worked Um, because i think a lot of people listen to that and go what that that's that doesn't you know that doesn't equate with how we think of Congress now.
1: There's a bunch of historical anal- analysis of that, um, you know how how did we go from this very uh, cohesive, bipartisan, um, overwhelmingly supported uh, environmental trend in law. To a a very contentious, divided us versus them, subsequent culture, and some people, uh, some historians that that I've followed argue that the the industry was sort of caught flat footed. Um, you're probably seeing a lot to, not to venture into the climate change territory, but. You know, the big oil companies, Exxon and those guys, were gaming out what was going to happen to the climate in the 1970s if we continued burning fossil fuels at the rate we did. And they pretty much nailed it, that we were going to see you know, rising temperatures and weirding weather and changing precipitation patterns and melting ice caps. And then they buried the science. Mm-hmm. They... And, you know, we've got the documents showing, oh, boy, we can't tell everybody this. And then they started a public uh, relations campaign to push the other direction. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there is no good science saying that this climate change is going to happen. And there is a ton of good science that, you know, we are having better living through chemistry. And, and some people will remember all those old phrases. Um, and they actively work to shut it down. And one of the ways that, uh, one of the other factors that got into this was, you know, what was known as the Sagebrush Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And the Endangered Species Act was a big factor in kicking that off. Because all of a sudden, ranchers and farmers and miners and other land users, loggers here in Montana, suddenly had this new law, which had incredibly far-reaching powers telling them, thou shalt not mess with this creature's habitat. Uh, the first big crash on that was, um, a lot of people will know about the snail darter, uh, which was a little tiny fish, never grows bigger than about three inches, that lived in um, the, underneath a, a gigantic hydroelectric dam uh, that was known as the Teleco Dam. And people had been fighting this dam for years, Trying to, it was gonna, you know, drown some cities and some towns and Native American burial grounds and a whole bunch of other assets that people were trying to protect, and they were losing right and left. And then somebody found the snail darter in the the waters of the river that was going to be dammed, pulled the Endangered Species Act emergency break and blocked the dam, mm-hmm. and this went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said the law says that the species overrides economic development. Mm-hmm. And they were real clear about that. It's it's not, um, it is black and white, it's not shades of gray. Congress then got involved and in 1978, they passed one of the first big amendments to the law and they created what was known as the God Squad. Mm-hmm. And this was a seven member cabinet level committee that the president could convene to look at an endangered species question and if necessary say no, actually the economic development or the the private property needs uh, over outweigh the species. And that was the compromise that uh, was giving some authority back to land users and landowners to counterbalance the the laws right. favoring of the species. Right. Um, that only got used once in the next big Endangered Species Act fight that everybody knows about, the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest right. logging. And it ended up sort of giving way to... Uh, the loggers in that case but at the same time the whole industrial structure of American logging which had up to that point been really really over logging all the private land that was in the Pacific Northwest and then they were turning uh to try to get access to the federal land Mm -hmm. and most of this was all checkerboarded if you recall um all the private and public land was was just uh square after square of, of private-public, private-public, private-public. So um, if you wanted to clear-cut everything, you were going to do some massive damage to ecosystems. That whole system sort of started falling apart on a on just a market level. It mm-hmm. wasn't going to work. And so even though the Spotted Owl officially lost in that God Squad deal, um, the logging industry also lost and a pretty foundational change in the logging industry took place um, resulting in the spotted owl kind of keeping its toehold and then getting almost wiped out by another owl called the barred owl, Mm -hmm. which invasively moved into its habitat and has now pushed it to the brink without the help of loggers.
0: Right. Right. So, I mean, you've alluded to, you've alluded to what this law, you know, has done to, you know, the environment and the economy um, and and as we see today, play out today, it continues to have pretty much any time the ESA is involved, with it comes controversy, um, whether it's from, you know, conservation environmental protection side or the special interests, the natural resources, um, the land user side. Um, what? Why is it so controversial?
1: I think part of it is because, first of all, it goes right at short-term interests. Um, if, if you get an endangered species on property that you intended to use to uh, make some money, you know whether you were going to cut the trees or you were going to grow the corn or you were going to build the houses or, or what have you, And the law pulls the plug on that and says, no, you can't do that because there's a little fish in there or some slimy bug or some grizzly bear or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that hits you right in the pocketbook. Um, And actually the next big uh, amendment to the ESA uh, after or kind of during the whole spotted owl thing was a new series of compromises. One of them was literally referred to as the No Surprises Act. (laughs) That if the federal government was going to uh, move in and try to try to recover a species, it had to get everybody, all of the stakeholders involved, and let them know what the challenges were going to be, where the places that were under consideration were, and what the what the off ramps were. And one of the big off ramps um, was, you know, are there things that you could do locally, voluntarily? Or even, you know, kind of at a state level to keep something from going on to a threatened or endangered level before the ESA gets its gears in the system. And there's been a lot of success with that, um, that we can talk about in a little bit. But the the other issue is when we wrote that law back in 1973... um, I think it's fair to say that our, our scientific, our biological understanding of what critters needed in order to recover from the damage that we'd done to them was a whole lot smaller than it is today. Um, you know, just for one example um, that this story project that we're coming out with in, in Montana's uh, Lee papers in a couple of days here, cutthroat trout. Mm-hmm. So back 50 years ago, um, when we saw cutthroat trout populations in, Mon- in one part of Montana declining, we grabbed cutthroat from another part. But in this case, it was West Slope cutthroat in Glacier Park were declining. And so we went to Yellowstone Park and we got Yellowstone cutthroat trout right. and dumped them into northern waters. West Slope cutthroat and Yellowstone cutthroat are two distinctly different species, even though they're both cutthroat trout. Right. They, they lay their eggs in different places. They like different kinds of water. They have different seasons for when they do their major migrations and whatnot, and they create different food webs. So today, we're having, Gl- Glacier Park is undergoing a West Slope cutthroat recovery process and they are so specific that cutthroat in the southeastern part of the park around East Glacier can't be used to augment cutthroat trout north of St. Mary Lake, right? 10 miles up the, up the mountain. right? Because they are distinctly different genetics. And now we you don't want cutthroat in the Missouri watershed getting into cutthroat in the Saskatchewan watershed.
0: Right, and we have the we have the scientific methodology to look at these species on a genetic level and tell these differences whereas, you know, decades ago we had that we did not have
1: that ability. 1973 we barely knew what DNA was. Right. <laughs> let alone how to parse it down to a 10-mile difference between two identical looking fish. Right, right. Um
0: so i i mean i guess well i'll say i'll save this i'll save this question for the end let's let's bring it home to montana um and and uh, go through some of the some of the reporting uh that uh, our team has done um you know h- how have the recovery efforts in montana
1: um affected the impact of the law Montana has been ground zero for a bunch of the major arguments and and developments in the ESA. Um, We put grizzly bears and gray wolves on the uh, threatened list within a year of the ESA's passage. And then we spent the next 50 years trying to uh, recover them or deal with them once they were essentially recovered. So in 1995, we uh, were the, the place where we transplanted gray wolves that were uh, populations captured in Canada and brought down to Yellowstone National Park and um, parts of Idaho. And then in the next you know 20 years, uh, those I think what was it 20, 25 wolves. Um, mm-hmm are now populations numbering in the hundreds or thousands. Um, And they became so uh, restored and recovered that uh, Democratic Senator John Tester passed a, or inserted a writer into a defense appropriations bill in 2011 uh, to remove Gray wolves from Endangered Species Act protection and block any loss, any judicial review. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't sue to get them back in, right? Or to keep them on the Endangered Species Act. And that's been one of the biggest problems of the law: is we can put animals on the Endangered Species Act. It's really hard to get them off,
0: as we've seen with grizzly bears.
1: As we've seen with grizzly bears, grizzly bears got on the Act in 1975, and they've been there ever since. We now have a 1,000 grizzly bears or so roaming around in the Northern Continental Divide between Glacier Park and Missoula. Another roughly 1,000 bears in the greater Yellowstone area. Those populations appear to be doing very well. But we've got four other recovery areas that have very few or no grizzlies in Mm them. And one of the weird, complicated bits of the Endangered Species Act is it's habitat-based. The main tool that it has to help an animal, you don't sort of, you know, run an ambulance up and, and put a stethoscope on a grizzly bear and, and do a blood test and see how it's doing. You put a stethoscope and a blood test on the habitat it needs. Right,
0: you preserve and strengthen the species' habitat.
1: But you make mistakes mm-hmm. or, or unintentional errors. So all of the recovery places for grizzly bears are in relatively remote mountain country. Mm-hmm. They're the Continental Divide, or Glacier Park, and, and Greater Yellowstone, and the Bitterits, and the Selkirk, Yak area, and the North Cascades. If you read the journals of Lewis and Clark, they never ran into grizzly bears there. Right. In any of those places. Where they ran into grizzly bears was the Missouri Breaks. was eastern Montana. Which isn't even considered a recovery zone. Which is not considered a recovery zone, (laughs) where farmers and ranchers are radically opposed to having a grizzly bear wandering around, Mm -hmm. even though that is evolutionarily where a grizzly bear belongs. Right. And this last summer, we are now seeing grizzly bears out east of Conrad. We're seeing grizzly bears north of Lewistown. We're seeing grizzly bears back in the Missouri Breaks And they are still protected by the Endangered Species Act, but they're not in their recovery zones. They're not in the place where we drew a circle on the map and said this is a good place for grizzlies. Um, So, you know, that's another thing that we're looking at in this series of stories we got coming up. In fact, the one that you're writing about is the techniques that we are working on people. In fact, why don't you tell me what you found about, um, folks trying to be range riders and, and electric fencers and, uh, dog keepers. Right. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you, you, like
0: you said, um, you know, as, as the population has increased in these recovery zones, these bears are going elsewhere. and, And as you articulated, um, some of them are going East, Um, some of them are just staying on the fringes of those recovery zones, but where they're going, you know, they're meeting the people who are making their livelihoods there. Um, and so, you know, my reporting, um, was looking at what sort of tools are we using and are most effective at, you know, coexisting with this, um, you know, not technically considered recovered in the sense of the law. Um, But, you know, anecdotally recovered for the people who, you know, live and and coexist with these species. And what I heard from a lot of people was oftentimes the the easiest, most efficient um, and most successful tools are tools that we've been using to coexist with these species for millennia. Um, And in particularly, I looked at, you know, West of the Divide, where... Uh, cattle production is the primary, you know, economic activity. Um, it was deploying range riders, um, which is just like we, you know, just like humans deployed shepherds, um, you know, 12,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Just a person with the stock, putting a person in between the stock and the predator, um, managing the stock to avoid conflict with the predator. Um, not necessarily managing the predator, um, but knowing the things that lead to predators either moving through the operation, which is what I think everybody wants, um, probably the predators as well. I'm sure they enjoy the meal, but I'm sure they hate riding in those traps or being euthanized. Um, and so, you know, in, I focused on, you know, the Blackfoot Valley, but this practice is used all over Western Montana where they will simply deploy um, a, a, a mounted rider. Sometimes it's on a horse, sometimes it's dirt bike, sometimes it's ATV. Um, and they are just out there looking for sign of predators, keep an eye on the animals running camera traps. Um, in some places they, you know, actively herd the livestock in ways that prevent conflict with predators. Um, in turn what they're finding is some of those practices is actually is showing that it's even better for the habitat and the rangeland um, but that's a whole other story that does not necessarily have to do with predator conflict and then east of the divide like you were saying the bears are going back to you know their ancient home on the prairie um, as we've seen in an earlier episode of this we talked about the the bear that was spotted on American Prairie Reserve land in the uh, in the breaks um and what they're seeing there is less conflict with livestock and more conflict with people um and it's it's a people and it's it's a way of life out there that has not coexisted with grizzly bears in the same way that um folks in the mountainous part of the state have so this is like a very very new thing um and as such montana fish wildlife and parks Mm -hmm. has
1: when you say coexist with people, you're talking about sending your kids out to the chicken coop and finding all the chickens that have been killed by a bear.
0: Yeah, exactly. That was that was what I heard from a ranch outside of Conrad, um, just a horrific story of uh, a family that sent their, their young boy out to check on the chickens one morning. And um, what he found was absolute, you know, murderous carnage of, you know, dozens of dead chickens. Um, and this was less than a stone's throw from their front porch. And so the concern there is, is, and in, in, I might rewind, a lot of these bears are attracted to the grain production, which is the primary economic driver there. There's, there's still a lot of livestock, um, but the bears love the grain. Um, they like to hang out in the grain fields. They like to be around the grain storage. The grain storage is around homes, it's around houses, bus stops, you know, it's, it's in there with the people. And so the problems they're trying to address there is keeping the bears away from the people, right, because of the actual, you know, the real-life danger of conflict with people. Um, not necessarily the economic effect of predator conflict, but, you know, the life-or-death effect of conflict. Um, and, again, a solution, an ancient solution, is the use of dogs. And so what this, what Fish and Life and Parks have done is they've deployed a team of, they call it the Prairie Bear Team, Prairie Bear Specialists, um, and they've been studying the use of livestock guardian dogs, but instead of using them to guard after livestock, they're using the families as the livestock, and the home place, For lack of a better term, as like the area that needs protecting. So they're deploying these Anatolian shepherds in this instance. And they didn't really know if it would work, you know, because these dogs have been bred for millennia to attach to livestock, sheep, goats, stick with them, um, and prevent any sort of conflict with them. But what they found is that they work really damn well. just protecting a home place. And so these bears they take care of your kids. Yeah, exactly. They, they see the kids as the sheep. And, um, so yeah, they, you know, they're deploying these dogs on farmsteads in the Conrad area. And they're finding that, um, you know, through collar data on the dogs and collar data on bears, that there is a real life, um, Conflict prevention happening by having these dogs do perimeter checks and wander around and, you know, check the bushes, check the ravine, you know, go through the crop fields at night and stuff. And at least this family that I'm talking to and the technicians there employed by the state, they're actually seeing a, a much a, 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 a drastic reduction in the amount of conflict by just having these dogs around. Um, so anyway, that's the
1: dogs just basically create a safe space for the yeah, family. Yeah,
0: it's just like what we do with range riding—put a person between the stock and the predator. What they're doing there is they're putting a dog between the predator and the people. Um, and it's just—we've been doing this forever, since since you know the time that we you know the wolf came to the camp, and the dogs became man's best friend. We've been using them. And we've used them as protection. Um, And so, yeah, it's just kind of implementing those practices. I mean, you know, and and that is not to say that there are a ton of technological advances that we use to prevent conflict. Electric fencing is huge. Um, On the east side, you know, carcass removal, Fortifying attractants, you know, so there is a lot of science. There's a lot of technology There's a lot of modern implements that we're using um, For what is kind of a modern problem that we see But still some of the most effective ones are the ones that we've been using for, you know, thousands of years um, mm-hmm. And so yeah, that, that was what my focus was was on grizzly bears um, But we also focused on other species um, Rob, so maybe you could give us, run us through kind of some of these other offerings in the project um, and how, you know, efforts in Montana um, have played into, you know, how the how the law has played out.
1: So one of the really interesting ones that will be coming up is a story from Brett French at the Billings Gazette, who is looking at uh, buffalo, bison, and a recent... Uh, call from the Department of Interior to declare buffalo an endangered species, and this brings up just a bizarre legal question because the the Interior Department's proposal only applies to Yellowstone Park area buffalo, but there are also the buffalo that are up in the American Prairie that you mentioned that are that's a private nonprofit organization that's picked up something like half a million acres around the Missouri Breaks and has been acquiring buffalo mainly from Yellowstone uh, and releasing them up there on federal grazing leases and private property. But those buffalo are legally considered wild or uh, livestock by the state of Montana. And then you've got a number of buffalo herds on several of the Indian reservations across Montana. You've got the Blackfeet have been growing their herd up to almost 20,000 animals. And just this summer, they uh, took a big truckload of them up to Chief Mountain, opened the doors, and let them go. Mm -hmm. There's no fences. There's no paddocks. There's no corrals. Those guys are running as wild as the elk and the wolves and the bull trout up there. Across the glacier, the Glacier Park border, across the Canadian border, across private ranches, they just let them go like wildlife. This is all the same animal. Mm-hmm. So is the the Yellowstone buffalo endangered? The American Prairie buffalo livestock and the Blackfeet buffalo a sovereign spiritual resource <laughs> uh, standing in the same set of hooves? Right. Um, this is going to be one of the real challenges for the endangered species act going forward. Is you've got some critters doing fine in some places and uh, in disaster in others, which is another story we've got coming on sharp-tailed grouse. Any bird hunter in Montana can tell you that if you go in eastern Montana, you see sharp tails all over the place. Mm-hmm. You go in western Montana and Idaho, no sharp tails. Right. Those sharp tails are on the endangered species list and or excuse me, they are not on the endangered species list because local landowners and uh, the Idaho and Montana fish and game agencies are working like crazy to do local recovery efforts Mm -hmm. in order to keep the federal Endangered Species Act from getting involved. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And they're seeing a fair amount of success for that. On the other hand, another story that we have coming is on the Arctic grayling, which is a really beautiful fish that lives in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming. The big sail-like dorsal fins. It's got a gigantic sail of a dorsal fin on a little foot-long fish.
0: Well, and this is, Um, the grayling is in a simpler situation as the grouse, in that it's not listed because the folks on the ground there are trying as hard as they can not to get The federal government involved is that correct
1: right that is correct unfortunately for the grayling the efforts do not appear to be working Mm -hmm. and part of that largely has to do with one of the main things grayling need is cold clean water and their biggest threat is the amount of irrigation that is pulled out of the rivers they depend on um where we can't seem to come to an agreement to leave enough water in the river for the fish and the farmers can't operate their fields and their crops without having that much water that they are legally entitled to. Right. Um, as climate change is reducing the amount of snowpack and the the uh, precipitation patterns that feed those rivers, you know, it that's sort of moving the goalposts on a planetary basis when our laws and our agricultural practices and our recovery efforts just can't keep up. Mm-hmm. Um, when the planet changes out from under you. Right, right. So that's the challenge that we're looking at. And, you know, these are issues that are going to ripple all through the nation as other places look at endangered species that are dependent on snow or dependent on rainfall or dependent on undisturbed ground that happens to be sitting on top of a lithium deposit or some other rare earth metal that we need for our electric cars. Um, we're realizing as we get better and better at understanding how the earth works, that our traditional and our economic uh, needs are running smack into conflict with the needs of creatures that can't survive if we keep insisting on having our own way. Right. So
0: I want to ask you, you know, about the future of the Endangered Species Act. But I kind of want to get your thoughts on this thing that has been running through my head as we've worked on this project and as we're discussing today. And and it's I don't know, maybe it's a devil's advocate deal, but that just kind of there's a big level element of arbitrariness to all of this sometimes. Um, Like you talk about with the trout, um, you know, splitting hairs down to the genetic level of of stream based populations Um, at the end of the day. To some people a cutthroat's a cutthroat and it's better than a pike um the grizzly bears how you know we have by all measures huge populations of grizzly bears in these places but because they're not like connected or because they're separated by these arbitrary you know recovery zones the owl that you mentioned from decades ago the protection of the spotted owl that in turn didn't really matter because the barred owl isn't taking over anyway The bison the different you know the arbitrary division between what is livestock and what is wildlife i i don't know what the question is here but do you have any thoughts on kind of the arbitrariness of all this sometimes
1: arbitrary is one way to look at it um another way is this is a learning process and as as somebody once described it to me um You know, if you get a cancer diagnosis uh, and they say, okay, um, if you want to keep living, you're going to have to do some really hard things. You know, you're going to have to go uh, get radiation. You're going to have to get chemotherapy. It's going to make all your hair fall out and make you sick and nauseous and you used to be a marathon runner and now you can barely get off the couch. But maybe you'll keep living and maybe you'll even come back and, and be able to run marathons again. But maybe, you know, parts of your body will be missing uh, when you come back. Fifty years ago, we were looking at catastrophic cascades of environmental impacts from the way we were living. And we passed a bunch of laws to try to fix that. We tried to clean up our water. We tried to clean up our air. We tried to um, use animals and plants as essentially fire alarms, which is really what the Endangered Species Act does. It gets animals that, if they're doing okay, everything else around them is doing okay. Sage grouse are a great example. If you've got sage grouse, you've got a ton of other critters that all need the same things. Um, but aren't as sensitive to damage as the sage grouse are. So if sage, or excuse me, sharp tail grouse, if sharp tails are doing great, everything else is doing great. If grizzly bears are doing great, everything else on the landscape, with the exception of corn growers and cattle growers, is usually doing great. And 50 years later, we're kind of hitting another peak wave of looking around and seeing damage going on. And this time it's in, you know, tiny chemicals that we didn't realize made our raincoats so nice are actually causing genetic damage, uh, within our own bodies. Mm -hmm. We're looking at energy systems that, you know, made air conditioning and, uh, nice, big, comfortable cars affordable are having side effects that we can't handle anymore. And we're really challenged by the idea that, you know, we may have to start undergoing the the planetary equivalent of chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. That we may have to make some big, hard sacrifices if we want to keep living, let alone keep the quality of standard of life we've got. And those are really, really hard conversations to have. And yeah, it sort of feels arbitrary the same way that when you tell somebody, oh, you've got cancer and you've got to quit eating bacon cheeseburgers. What? <laughs> right. No fair. What do you mean? I gotta, you know, be drinking out of a straw for the rest of my life? Um, I'm dying here anyway. That seems that seems arbitrary. And yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just here to leave a beautiful corpse. <laughs> um, well, there are other things that are attached to our intentions and our desires, and it's a question of how much we're willing to learn about those attachments and and accept responsibility that our actions have impacts elsewhere
0: right right okay so now on to the future um, what we heard the, in the last couple of weeks that the Wolverine is going to be listed um, and as you mentioned the you know ongoing and upcoming effects of climate change are sure to you know degrade the habitat and change the habitat of some species that are of concern Um so the ESA is not going anywhere. We're, we're, what can we expect out of the future from it?
1: The The next few months, really, uh, are going to be kind of pivotal for the future of the ESA. You, we mentioned earlier Congress is deadlocked in a way that um, the laws that were passed back in the 1960s and 70s wouldn't stand a chance today. Right. Right. Um, there, there is no way that any big bipartisan, unified, uh, nuanced legislation w- is going to get through Congress. On the judicial side, and this is where the next few months are so important, we're looking at some potentially um, watershed changes in what the Supreme Court says is the way our laws work. Um, The biggest one is, is what's known as the Major Questions Doctrine. And this is a thing that the Supreme Court seems to be more and more relying on. It says if there is a big issue here, courts shouldn't decide this. Congress should explicitly say, do this and not that. But the catch there is if Congress can't pass any laws, especially nuanced laws saying do this and not that, and the court says that the existing laws can't function because they're a major question, then you have step three, and that's whoever is president at the moment. Whoever's president appoints the head of the Department of the Interior, who appoints the head of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who manages the Endangered Species Act. And so what they end up doing is passing regulations that don't go through Congress and do wind up in court and every time you change an administration, the new administration does everything it can to undo what the previous administration did. You end up with uh, you know, regulation whiplash. So in my talking with a whole bunch of folks who are watching the ESA, um, a couple of interesting ideas are bubbling up. One from a, uh, a law professor uh, at uh, University of California, Berkeley, Holly duramus She's proposing that we move this to the academic world, hmm. that we convene a convention of academics and scientists and biologists and let them propose a way forward. And one of the biggest ways she expects is a sort of a triage thing that you look at, you know, just like in a, in a, a hospital emergency There are those people who are hurt so bad, they're just going to die. And there are those people who are injured, but they're not immediately going to die. They may be able to just handle it themselves. And then there are those people that if we throw a bunch of effort at them, we can save their life. Mm -hmm. So you take a problem and you immediately cut off two-thirds of your problem because some are going to die, some are going to be okay. Throw it at the one-third that you can actually help. Mm -hmm. She thinks that. Um, you know coming up with a way to make those decisions about critters so wolverines if they are dependent on snowpack and we can't make more snow they may be in the you're gonna die territory
0: right right and there's and no the the absolutism of the law there really isn't a triage there isn't a, a you know at the a subjective a subjective evaluation component to throwing these
1: resources right And a a researcher here at uh, the University of Montana Law School, Sandy Zilmer, is proposing what she calls a soft-release system for Endangered Species Act. And that's where, rather than black and white, you're on the list or you're off the list, uh, there is a much longer tail of federal oversight during the handover to uh, state agency management. This could really sort of resolve things like the grizzly bear, where changes in administration all of a sudden at the state level are putting grizzlies proposed for big game hunting, and the feds are turning around and saying, if you do that, you're going to crash the population so fast that we're going to have to put the bear right back on the list, or we're not going to take the bear off. Um, If we had a more functional way of doing a soft release, we might actually get a lot more critters released without Uh, conflict. So having a bunch of of eggheads in a room uh, coming up with an idea that might turn into a national law is not actually a a new thing. We've done it before right here in Montana. It was known as the Bully Report in the 1970's where the University of Montana Forestry School looked at how the Forest Service and the timber industry were using the landscape and showed that it was wildly out of whack that we were doing uh, below-cost timber sales and allowing uh, reforestation practices that didn't actually work and firefighting plans that actually caused more fires than they put out and it forced the restructuring of the timber industry it triggered the creation of the national environmental policy act and a whole bunch of other landscape management acts that are equally controversial, but also really change the way that we use the forest landscape in federal law. We can do that again, and that is a process that might actually come up with something that you could present to Congress and have all the nuances worked out in advance and then get something passed and functional. Another idea that is proposed by a a University of Montana law professor who specializes in Endangered Species Act, Sandy Zilmer, um, is what's known as the soft release idea. One of the big, as you were saying, arbitrary issues of endangered species protection is it's sort of on or off. You're either on the list or you're off the list and, for example, with uh, grizzly bears in Montana, The governments of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming are all insisting that grizzly bears be delisted. And one of the biggest reasons that they want to have that is so that they can offer local hunting seasons. And the federal government, the Fish and Wildlife Service, is saying, we do not have faith in your responsibility in handling those that you won't just send the grizzlies crashing right back into endangered status. And so as part of our review of the delisting process, we're considering whether these states are going to be responsible overseers. And if they're not, then we're not going to delist. Zellmer's idea of a soft release is that you have a much longer tail of federal, state, local cooperation on how you do the, from threatened, listed species to... Uh, delisted local managed species that there is more oversight and review of how things are going kind of like what we're doing before species get listed with the sharp-tailed grouse and the grayling where you have everybody working and the idea is to keep these populations at a safe and functional level and not overdo it. You do that at the end as well as the beginning and you may end up resolving a lot of conflict Bottom line, though, is we're looking at 44,000 species that we know of worldwide are on the brink of extinction, and loss of biodiversity is a gigantic red light on the dashboard about whether everything else is going to function, including the pollinators that we need for our crops and the soil conditions that we need to maintain healthy air and healthy water. So this is getting to be like that hard visit at the doctor where they say, um, you may have a life-changing event coming at you and it's going to require sacrifice and big change. Mm -hmm. And we just need to start learning the effects of our actions and the responsibilities that we are undertaking when we insist on the way of life we're comfortable with and owning up for those costs that we have incurred. Right, right.
0: Well, hey, thanks, Rob, for coming on. Um, Listeners, if you are listening, uh, this project has been published on Lee Enterprises' Montana newspaper, so I encourage you to go online and um, check it all out. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Tom. Montana Untamed is a podcast from the newsrooms of Lee Enterprises' Montana newspapers. Visit any of our websites or subscribe wherever podcasts are found.